0: you're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. In mid-July, of 1960, the famous writer and Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis, was devastated by the death of his wife, Joy, who had been struggling with bone cancer for almost four years. As a way to cope with his grief, he decided to record his thoughts and feelings in writing. The result was his extraordinary book entitled, A Grief Observed. During the next 40 to 45 minutes, we here tonight are to imagine that we are silent and invisible witnesses of various agonizing moments for C.S. Lewis during the first two months of his grieving process. Moments when he expresses in blunt and honest language many of his most passionate emotions and intellectual struggles during that most difficult time. Joy's painful death certainly did test the faith of C.S. Lewis, but he did not lose his faith as a result of his anger and his questionings. On the contrary, he emerged from his time of grief with a more robust and mature faith.
1: Over two months ago, I began to record my thoughts and my feelings about Joy's death. I have referred to her as H to to disguise her identity, which is an abbreviation of her first name, Helen, a name that no one ever used, even herself. I wonder what H would think of these notes. I wonder myself, are they merely morbid? I once read a sentence in a novel, I lie awake all night with toothache. And I lie awake all night thinking about the fact that I am lying awake with toothache. That sentence is very true to life, very true. A part of every misery is not only that we suffer, but that we are constantly thinking about the fact that we are suffering. I now live in grief every day, and I also think every day of how I am living in grief. So, are these notes nothing more than the recording of the monotonous march of my mind around this one subject, this subject of grief, but what am I to do? I need something to ease my pain, to numb my mind, and reading is not enough. Perhaps if I write it all down, we have not all of it, but some of it, perhaps if I write it down, I shall somehow get out of it, at least a little. There are moments when a part of myself tries to convince me that I do not mind H's death so much? Not so very much. After all, love is not all of a man's life. I was happy before I ever met H. Come now, I shan't do so badly. People get over such things. This small voice of reason seems to be making a very good case. Until... Some sharp, hot stab of memory accosts me, and that small voice of reason vanishes like, like an ant before the mouth of a furnace. And then comes the pathos and the maudlin tears and, and then a bath of self-pity and the pleasure I seem to find in wallowing in such self-pity. It all disgusts me. I have become aware that I am an embarrassment to almost everyone I meet these days. In the street, at work, at the club, as I see people approaching me, I can tell that they are trying to decide if they shall say something about Joy's death or if they shan't. I hate it when they do, and I hate it when they do not. And some of my friends, I can tell, so dread an encounter with me that they have been avoiding me for days. Perhaps the bereaved should be put in some separate settlement like the leper. Cancer, cancer and cancer. First my mother when she was only nine, then my father 15 years later and now my wife. But it is never just cancer, just unhappiness, just happiness. There is only one hour and one moment after another that comes at us. There are bad times in our good times and there are good times in our worst at times. How can we focus? But it is incredible, the happiness, the joy that she and I enjoyed together long after any hope of recovery was gone. How long and how peacefully we talked together on that final night before she died, but not not really totally together. There is a limit, there is a limit to the one flesh. She had her miseries, not mine. And I had my miseries, not hers. We both knew it. We were heading out on different roads and we knew it. That cold fact is the beginning of the separation that is death itself. I have very little patience for those people who say to me, there is no death, or death doesn't matter. There is death. And whatever is matters. And whatever happens has consequences. And those consequences are irreversible and irrevocable. She is dead. She died. Is that word so difficult to understand? Meanwhile, where is God? When you go to him when you are happy, so happy that you do not even feel a need for him. You will go to him if you remember yourself with gratitude and praise. And you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Silence. What am I to make of this silence of God? Why does he seem so present in our times of prosperity and so very absent in our times of trouble? I tried to discuss this just this afternoon with one of my colleagues, and he eventually pointed out to me that Christ himself had time had a time when he seemed to feel abandoned. Why hast thou forsaken me? Christ cried from the cross. I know he said this, but it does not help me to understand God's silence. Not one bit. How, how can I how can I understand this? He, he, seems, he seems so absent. I do not think there is danger of my concluding that God does not exist. The danger is that I may come to some conclusions about God that are quite dreadful. I do not fear the conclusion, ah, so God does not exist after all. No, what I fear is the conclusion. Ah, this is what God is like after all. Deceive yourself no longer. After reading what I have written in this first notebook, I am appalled by what I have written. To read what I have written would would cause one to think that joy is death, age is death, mattered most on how it has affected me. I must think more of H and less of myself. But there is there is a snag. I think of H all the time. but the image that I am creating in my mind of age, that image will inevitably become increasingly unlike the actual woman I knew and loved. I loved H. And I do not wish to fall in love with some flawed image of her in my mind. Now that H is gone, I try I try to pray for her, but I am bewildered. I come up against a ghastly sense of unreality, as if I am speaking in a vacuum about a non-entity. Where is age now? <clears throat> Some very kind people say that she is, she is with God. Um, very, very certain that she is, in one sense, in, indeed, she is like God, incomprehensible, un, unimaginable. But I cannot, I cannot fathom that in my body, in my heart. My body and my heart cry out for her to come back, come back. And I know what I want is impossible. What I want, I cannot have. I want the old life. I want the old laughter. The old jokes. I even want the tiny, commonplace things. They tell me that she is happy now. That she is at peace because she is in God's hands. But if so, she was in God's hands all the time. And if so, I know What God's hands did to her here. What chokes every prayer and every hope is all the memories of all the prayers and all the false hopes that we had, brought on by false diagnoses, by strange remissions, by one temporary recovery that might have ranked as a miracle. Step by step. We were led up the garden path. And time after time, when he seemed to be most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. I wrote those words just last evening. And now that I reread them in the light of day, I realize that they were a shout, a scream. But they were not a thought. So let me try again. Is it rational to believe in a bad God Is it rational to believe in the cosmic sadist? Is God unjust? Is he unreasonable? Is he vindictive? Is he cruel? To get to the very root of the matter, if all of reality is meaningless, why? Why bother? What is the point of trying to think about God or about anything for that matter? Why do I allow such fearsome nonsense into my mind? Far too many of these notes are the senseless writhings of a man, myself, who cannot come to terms with the fact that there is nothing to do about suffering except to suffer it. and grief. Grief continues to feel like fear, like suspense, as if I am waiting for something to happen. It gives life a provisional feeling, and I have no desire to start anything, and I cannot settle down and In any way. Before, I I felt that there was no time in my life at all for anything, but now there is nothing but time. One empty moment after another, a string of successive empty moments. And in all of those moments, I feel terribly as if there is something. Wrong. There is something amiss. Shall these mad midnight moments never cease? But what will follow if they do? Apathy, dead flatness, boredom. Tinged with nausea, feelings, feelings, and feelings, and feelings. Let me try. Let me try to think instead. What factor has H's death added to the problem of the universe? To be more direct, what grounds does H's death, what has it given me to cause me to doubt what I claimed I had believed in the past? I knew that terrible things happened. I knew that much more terrible things than this happened every day. I knew that I could not count on worldly happiness. I knew that all of us were told in the Bible that we would suffer. We were told, indeed, blessed are they that mourn. I took it into account, I thought, But it is different when it happens to oneself and not to others. Yes, that is true. But should H's death have overwhelmed me so? No. If my faith had been real, If my concern for the sorrows of the world had been real, then ages death should not have so overwhelmed me. No, the case is plain. If my house has collapsed after one blow, my house was nothing more than a house of cards. My so-called faith, if it had been real faith, and my so-called sympathy for the sorrows of the world, if it had been real sympathy, then I think that I should not have been so overwhelmed by H's death. Perhaps a man like me must be stricken to my very core in order to come to my senses. Perhaps for a man like me, only torture, only torture can bring me to the truth. When I look back upon my rhetoric about the cosmic sadist three, four weeks ago, I now realize that that rhetoric was not an expression of what I thought to be true. That rhetoric was an expression of my pain and my anger. I took, I got from that rhetoric of anger the only pleasure a man in anguish can get. It was my way of hitting back. It was my way of getting it off my chest. And it helped ease my grief, but only for a moment. Now, When I think back upon the barrage of physical pain that H endured in her final weeks and days, I am forced to ask, what is grief compared to constant physical pain? Despite what some say, there is no denying that at times the body can suffer, suffer terribly, 20 times as much as the mind. And I think back on those days, her terrible pain as a result of the bone cancer. I remember that I found it at times unendurable and I would babble to myself, if only I could bear her pain, if only I could bear the worst or even some of it instead of her. But that wish, there was nothing staked upon it. If it became possible, then I would find how sincerely I meant it. But was it? Is it ever allowed? it, bearing another's pain, bearing the pain of all of us, for all of us, was allowed to one, to that one called Jesus the Christ. When I ponder this, I find that I can believe again. I can believe again. For he, the Christ, has done vicariously whatever can be done for all of us and our pain. And he says to me, you cannot bear her pain, and you dare not. Christ then says, I can bear her pain. I did, and I do. Something very unexpected has happened. It happened this morning. For various reasons, my heart was lighter than it has been for several weeks. When I first awoke, I noticed that after several days of dark gray skies, the sun was shining. And there was a breeze, and then when I least mourned H's death, I remembered her best. I think I can explain this change. When our eyes are filled with tears, we cannot see clearly. In other words, if we want something too desperately, we cannot get it. And thus, I now realize that that door to God is no longer slammed shut. Had my own desperate, frantic cries slammed that door in my face. Those times when your soul is filled with nothing but your own frantic cries and needs are those times when even God cannot help you because you have become like the drowning man who cannot be helped because all that he does is he clutches and he grabs. And my own frantic cries within and without deafened me to the voice that I so longed to hear. And so I have come to understand that frantic, frantic and and desperate grief does not link us to the dead. On the contrary, it separates us from them. I have learned this more and more. When I least mourn H's death is is when H comes rushing back upon me in all of her full reality. That is, in all of her full otherness. In short, the less I mourn H, the nearer I seem to be to her. That is good, and that is healing. But tonight, tonight I can feel, I can feel myself falling once again into the pit of grief. Once more feeling a young despair and grief, the angry words, the bitter resentment, the constant tears. It seems that in grief, there is not always progress. I feel as if I am going round and round. I fear that perhaps I am in some sort of circular trench. Or perhaps I am on a spiral. But if a spiral... Am I going upward or am I going downward? This is the fourth and final manuscript book that I have been able to find in the house. And so I have resolved to end my notes upon this time of grieving with this notebook. When I started this process, I I thought that I could describe grief as a state and perhaps make a map of sorrow, but I have come to realize that grief is not a state. Grief is a process. Grief does not require a map. Grief requires a history. Grief is like a winding valley, and around every bend in the road is a new landscape. A few weeks ago, I feared that it was nothing more than a circular trench, but that is not true. There are partial, partial recurrences, but the sequence, the sequence in the landscapes do not, does not repeat itself. When I look back upon these notes, I realize that they have been about me and about age and about God in that order. Exactly the order and the proportions that they should not have been. Throughout it all, that mode of thinking about age and God has never engaged in the mode that we call praise. Praise is a form of love that is infused with joy. And I have come to realize that these pages have missed the point. Praise Praise in due order. Praise for God as the giver. The giver of life. And praise for age. My earthly beloved. The gift. She was the gift. The gift of the giver. In the early days of my grief, I worried that I would somehow forget, I worried that I would forget H's appearance. But since then, I have come to realize that images are not that important. Images, whether in photographs or in our mind, are not really that important because they are simply the links to the reality that we crave. And that we need. There is a parallel on a much higher sphere. Tomorrow morning a priest shall place a small round wafer near me. And I I know that that wafer does not in the very least resemble that reality with which it would unite me. I crave Christ, not anything that resembles him. And I crave and need age and not anything that resembles her. Images, static images have their uses I suppose, but it is obvious that they have their dangers. My static image of God or my idea of God is not a divine image and not a divine idea, not at all. And as a result, they must be shattered from time to time. And God is the great shatterer. God is the great iconoclast. That is, he is a destroyer of static images. And the best example of shattering an image is the incarnation. Because the incarnation put to ruins all previous images of the Messiah. All reality, all reality is a iconoclast, a destroyer of static images. My earthly beloved H constantly triumphed over any image or static idea that I had created of her and I wanted her to be so. I wanted her in all her resistances and in all her unexpectedness. I crave and I need not my idea or image of H, but H. I crave and I need not my idea or image of God, but God. Over these last few weeks, I have put some very difficult questions before God, and He has given me no answer, but a special, rather, no answer as if he were looking at me with a silent and compassionate gaze and he was saying to me, peace, child, you do not understand. I wonder if a mortal can ask questions of God that are unanswerable. Quite easily, I should think, for all nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow round or square? Perhaps half of our questions, our great metaphysical and theological questions, are questions like that from God's perspective, when I ponder the great mysteries, such as the fruition of God, or reunion with the dead, I know that I cannot know, cannot know the answers I cannot know. But I suspect that the answers are shockingly simple. Very early in my grieving process, I wanted my dead earthly beloved to return to me. But how wicked it could be if we could to call the dead back to us in her final moments she said not to me but to the chaplain (coughs) I am at peace with God she smiled but not at me Quote the final line of Dante's masterpiece. poi torno al eternal fontana. Translation. And then. She returned. To the eternal fount. Thank you.